river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a downdoor junkie. What we're going to be talking about a little bit today with uh, Marv Clanky, which this is our uh, third time having Marv on the podcast. Uh, we had him on episode 28 and 42. And uh, you should go back and definitely check those episodes out if you didn't hear them. But Marv has uh, put a, a lifetime of bow hunting into uh, a new book. So tell us what that book is called, Marv, and tell us uh, how, how you finally nailed it down and got it done. Well, I, I named it Son of the Longbow, and I do a lot of thinking when I wake up the first thing in the morning, and I was trying to figure out what to do that book, and Judy suggested a few, and then I got to thinking, well, I'm I'm really the son of a longbow because that's what I've been using for 30 years. <laughs> but uh, I really started this thing in 1977 after I killed my bighorn sheep, and um, I started writing it. Of course, I was writing for the magazines, but... I started writing on it, and I just kept a little here and a little there, and I, just, I never found the time to really do it until this coronavirus hit, and I thought, man, I'm going to get that done and put it all together because I'm not getting any younger. And and so I stuck my nose to the grindstone and luckily got it done with the help of some of the friends. So, Lee Klein well, really helped me a lot with the pictures and that. He, he laid the cover out for me. And, uh, the cover is the cover's gorgeous, Marv. I mean, you nailed it. That is a beautiful cover. You know, the, uh, the way that cover came about is uh, Wayne Deppersmith drew a sheep permit about, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago down at uh, Fairplay where our cabin was at. And uh, we were hunting bighorn sheep over on Buffalo Peaks. And the middle of the day after they went into the timber and laid down, that huge patch of brush that you see there sometimes had some really big bucks in it. And I told Wayne, I said, let's sneak down there into there and let's see if we can't find a big buck. Well, you know, finding them laying down and that stuff's terrible. And so we uh, laid down to take a nap and I took off some of my stuff there and I got to thinking that old log right there would make a neat picture. So I just stuck it up there and took that picture and as it ended up it has a good cause. <laughs> oh man. What uh what what longbow is that, Marsh? Uh that one there is a big horn. Uh that's a that, big horn? that's a, an Asbell big horn, one of the early ones and it uh I shot it uh, a lot, that and the Black Canyons. Mainly the ones that I shoot I now I just shoot the Black Canyon. I've just mm-hmm. kind of retired that bighorn. I think I gave that to one of the grandsons to use anyway. So pass those what, uh, down to the kids. What's your arrow quiver there? Uh, that's that one that I make myself. It's a, a hip quiver. And I use uh, those old uh, ace and the whole parts, the uh, arrow holder and the cup. And then what I do is I cover a piece of uh, uh, aluminum 
with leather and uh, bend it so that it fits in your pocket or you can hit it on the belt. And it holds eight arrows and uh, it leans back. And the reason that I did that is because, you know, 90% of our hunting was with backpacks on. And you couldn't use a back uh, quiver. And I, I just never have liked bow quivers. Even though I used them some, I, I never liked them because I thought they threw the bow off balance, you know, to the right side because of the weight. And uh, when I got into the longbows, I never did use one on a longbow because I always thought a longbow was too pretty and pristine to ding it up with a bow quiver. <laughs> so I came up with that one, and I've had a lot of I've made a lot of them for guys in that in. Uh, you know, probably 15 or 20, and, of course, all the kids got one. But uh, everybody that gets them, they just love them. They work really good. It just clips over, and I hook it in my pocket, and uh, it it leans. I've got it so it leans the feathers back. The, and uh, that way, when you get into the brush, you can just reach down and pull it out and put it over top of the brush, or if you're crawling, you can crawl with it or whatever. Yeah, I that, think that, I, I'm I'm tinkering with a longbow this year, so I'm going to give it a go. And I'm kind of in that same boat. I'm like, man, I the bow quiver. I've always shot a bow quiver, and all these side quivers and hip quivers. I don't like the arrows rattling, and so yeah, I, I was checking out that quiver a lot. I might have to contrap something similar. <laughs> well, uh, it, you know, either I could either make you one, or you can make it. I can show you how, but. Uh, uh, I think there are some other pictures in the book there that show that quiver. Cool. And I know, uh, I know we sure. didn't have any more. It seems like they'd keep making quivers with less, less and less arrows. Yeah. Well, I'm not a, ne- a good enough shot for a four-arrow so. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I have a longbow that, uh, is my favorite bow, and, it does not like a bow quiver. I mean, the bow just oh, becomes a dog look, with the bow quiver. Yeah, it just. Yeah, I just think uh, they're too nice to be cluttered up with a bow quiver. But uh, that painting that Compton did—have you seen it? Where yeah. I'm right by the big buck. Yeah. Yep. Okay. If you look at that, you can see that quiver the way it works on my side. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I can, I can tell by reading the back of the book. And like James said, we've had you on here a couple times and we know all the things you've done for bow hunting and, you know, instrumental in getting the sheep season started and everything in Colorado and all the organizations. But man, it is just absolutely incredible. You guys get this book. The first thing you need to do is take a few minutes and read the back cover. Because, yeah. Marv, I don't think, I mean, besides sitting down and going to breakfast with your wife on Sundays, it doesn't seem like you ever sat still for 60 years because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we help out with the traditional archers of Oregon and, you know, we, we do a little bit here and there, but oh my goodness, you, you have been a busy man and we definitely appreciate all the work you've done for bow hunting and not just bow hunting for sheep and, you know, man, just incredible. Well, thank you. 
I've I've never been to one to waste daylight. You know, I used to get up at, when I was working, when we were running the company, I used to get up at 4.30 in the morning and do my scrimshaw work and to make the knives and stuff and get that done before I'd go to work. And then I'd do a little bit when I come home. But uh, I just... I've never been one to waste an hour of daylight. <laughs> I can tell. Oh my goodness! I just you, life's too short for that. Well, and and what a what an opportunity! You know, we got the pandemic and everybody's all sitting around ah, the end of the world, and you're like, all right, well, time to do my book. <laughs> <laughs> that and shed hunt and take pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's one thing about the book that you know before. I'm, you know, I'm 40 now, getting older, but man, it, 10, 15 years ago, before these cell phones, I never took any pictures, which really, I'm really kind of sad about that now, you know, and, and we would get the camera out when somebody got something, but man, the, just the amount of pictures you took along the way and, and just the time and man, I wish I was a little wiser in my younger years and, had some pictures to go back on because we were always just so busy going, 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 going. We never slowed down to take any pictures. Well, and and that is a tough deal, but you know you can't blame yourself for that. And what ha- I just was extremely lucky because my dad took a lot of pictures. And that, that picture of me and Todd when he was a year old with that first buck, and that you know my dad took this picture and he took the one uh, the rifle picture that i've got with a vest on but my dad took a lot of pictures and he instilled that in me and my two brothers and i was i was much more into it than my two brothers were but but that's where that came from and you know i guess i just loved the outdoors so darn much that i had to have as much as i could of it to remember it by and so I always took a lot of pictures, and it paid off. You know, it paid off a lot. For sure, well, it definitely but, helped. I mean, it's just I, I love looking at those old pictures. I mean, like I said, and you have—I don't know how many. You remember how many pictures you have in this book? <laughs> yeah, vividly, two hundred eighty-one. <laughs> two hundred eighty-one. There you go. So, yeah. When uh, I just, told when I told TJ that. When I was getting ready to do something with a publisher, and he's the one that put T.J. Conrad is the one that put me on the publisher, and I he said uh, you got two books here, you can't make this book this big, and I said it ain't happening, T.J. I'm only writing one. <laughs> and he says how many pictures have you got? And I said 281. And he says oh my God, you can't do that. He said it'll cost you a fortune. I said, I don't give a darn, boy. I said, when I read a book and it ain't got no pictures, it's not interesting. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, I've uh, I've got this thing in my hand right now. It's like 340-plus pages with 281 yeah. pictures. And the pictures are so awesome. I was telling Bob, like, the old-school camouflage and the family and the, oh, it's just, just bow hunting it's just so good i really enjoy it well you know the other thing on those pictures is uh almost all the books that i looked at were black and white and if you go back and look at even the ones that are published now the pictures in black and white are very very hard to tell who it is and what it is you know because they just do not print real good and (laughs) 
And I told CJ, I said, I'm going to pay the price and get them done in color, and boy, am I glad I did. Oh, it is. They did a beautiful job of printing those on there, so... And it's yeah. not, I mean, it's almost like it's a table book because of the pictures, but then it's just full of goodness here. I've only honestly read the first five chapters. I, I wanted to skip around, but I, uh, before we had this interview, but it's just not, I just can't do it. So I just looked at all the pictures and started reading from the beginning and, um, I don't want to make you blush too much, but you're definitely one of my very favorite guests we've had on the show and one of my very favorite bow hunters. And well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. That's that's the from right from my heart. And um, the the caption you wrote to this uh, wrote to me in this book is awesome. Um, but uh, just how it starts. I mean, just right out the gate, I don't want to give nothing up, but just the first chapter, I was, you had, I was pins and needles, didn't know where it was going. And <laughs> it was, it was such a great way to open it up, Marv. I'm not going to give up, give it up, but it was <laughs> such an awesome way to open the book. Good job. I mean, man, you really captivated me from the beginning. <laughs> I had a guy here. The day before yesterday, and, and uh, he just read the first couple chapters, and he said, boy, did you sucker me in on that one. He said, I thought a damn bear was going to eat you or something. <laughs> 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 but one of the things that I, you know, and I had to really, really think about was hardcover versus the softcover, but, boy, the hardcover was just prohibitive, you know, and some of the guys said they'd like to have a hardcover, and I said, hey, it's it's not about the cover it's about the book and uh yeah uh, it uh, it is just so terribly expensive to have a hard cover over a soft cover it's just unreal yeah so, I can only imagine. I just, and you know what's crazy is 10 or 20 even 10 years ago it wasn't that much difference to have a hard cover over a soft cover but nowadays there's so few publishers that are still in business that boy, they hammer you on them. They really hammer you. Well, I'm going to go out on the ledge and say the best thing that's come from COVID-19 is son of a longbow. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm. And I will tell you one thing. Though I have uh, TJ's printers are in their publishers that do their books is back in Ohio, and that's who I had them do it. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, uh, the gals were so good to work with and everything. But when the book was done and I said, hey, how much is this shipping going to be? I think I dropped the phone. It cost me $1,100 to ship those books from Ohio to here. <laughs> but, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's one of the costs. So. I'm surprised you didn't just uh, jump in your truck and drive to Ohio. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, but uh, you got to do them right, I guess. I don't know. I hope it's so, right. <laughs> when did you uh when did you first start thinking uh about, you know, I'm I'm sure there's been a lot of people pushing you in this direction over the years or whatever, but like when was the first thought like, ah, "I've got to put all this in together as a book?" Well, I'll tell you how that happened. Uh, at one of the Pope and Young get-togethers, I was 
sitting down with three or four of the guys, and I was sitting next to Fred Bear. And by that time, we had got to know each other, and we were. He was telling me about that stone sheep, and and he knew that I hunted bighorns and that. And uh, he said that he said uh, Marvy said you got to put this stuff in a book someday. And uh, I never forgot that. You know, he said you got to put it in a book, and that kind of got me to thinking about it. And then in '77, when I killed the bighorn, I thought, man, I'm going to start that book. And uh, see what it is, but it it just uh, you know at that time I was going a hundred miles an hour working and hunting and taking care of the Judy and the kids and and uh, it, you get a little bit done here and there and a little bit more done, but and some of those articles were in the magazines. You know, there's no question that uh, probably a third or more of those articles were in the magazines. But you got to remember that when you send an article into those magazines, that they can only take so much of the article. And they would always mm. tell us, you know, how many words we could go with. So that you only have part of what actually happened in there, in, in, in the magazine article. So these are the complete article. You know, they're the complete hunt. Where what happened... Wow. Uh, Magazines are just a brief part of what happened on the hunt. I had no idea that, that uh, I guess that makes sense with you mentioned TJ wanting to cut the book down. They cut, they got their, uh, those editors, they cut everything down. Oh, um, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But right after I started, I started writing for Bowhunter Magazine in 1971, shortly after they started. And, uh, and of course, the first thing that MR told us was, how many words we could go with. And uh, so, you know, I would write an article. I would write all this stuff down so I wouldn't forget it. And uh, then I would have to go back and edit it down to a, a certain a certain size. And sometimes they would even edit them down more. In fact, the first time that Stone Sheep article was was printed... Uh, it actually changed the 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 uh, article quite a bit uh, because of editing it down. But one thing I that I got to thank those guys for is I did learn to edit uh, then, and I edited this complete book myself. And uh, I've uh, so far, well, so far I shouldn't say that I've read the whole thing about fifty times. But I after it was printed, I did find two mistakes. In there, and one of them was uh, Duke's name is not capitalized once, and uh, the other one was really funny because I get the book and I skim through it, and then I read it again, and our little uh, great granddaughter's name is Gemma, G E M M A, and when the gal that I had lay it out for me, you have to have a you have to have a person lay the whole book out before you send it into the publisher. And when she laid it out, right away I saw under that caption that uh, she had printed it Emma instead of Gam- Gemma. And so I emailed her and I said, hey, you know, you've got to change this to G-E-M-M-A. Well, she didn't do that and I never noticed it. So in the book, our mm-hmm. great-granddaughter's name is Emma instead of Gemma. So I sent all those kids a book. You know, I made sure that all, even the little ones like her, she's uh, 
eight years old, I think, or nine years old. And I said, well, this is the way it is, Gemma. I said, in the book, it's Emma, and I want you to change your name so it fits the book. <laughs> and she got the biggest kick out of that. <laughs> Uh, I saw. I'm. I'm. Uh, punctuation spelling is not my forte, um, but I was in the first in Judy's uh, mountain lion hunt. You led us to believe that it was a big uh, female, and then you referred to the to the cat as a as a him. And I was like, "Oh, you got it wrong. It's a female." And then it turns out, no, he you told the rest of the story, and um, so that that uh, was pretty awesome. That was um, the, yeah, that was the craziest thing because we had our uh, Ed Pankos who was in there uh, quite a bit. Him and I had dogs and we ran lions and bears and coons and that, and uh, so we did a, a fair share of mountain lion hunting. And and I knew when we put that cat up the tree that uh, that it was a male. I told the guys, his head's too big, it's too blocky. Females never have heads that are wide like that and that and of course they said there was no testicles so it had to be a female and even when he hit the ground we talked about it again and i said hey this has got to be a male and uh, we looked and there was no testicles and uh so when we took it in uh, that's when we he said well we'll take it to a veterinarian and see what's going on here and uh, the vet said oh yeah they had drawn up inside and it was definitely a male so, uh, and, and of course, then we was able to, he, he showed us how to pull down the penis and the sheath because on a lion, it's very, very difficult to see the penis and the sheath, but they're there mm-hmm. if you just hold on, you know, just grab it with your hand because the hair and the, the hide kind of covered up. But, and I never thought to do that when we first got it down, but that's how that happened and, so. Very cool. I know. I know. Looking at all these um, pictures and just starting to talk about riding and stuff. Uh, I know, like Don Thomas always tells everybody to to take uh, a camera field and take quality pictures and, and take notes on the hunt. Um, what was your process when you started riding back in the seventies? Where you, you know, obviously you you were uh, taking the pictures. Were you taking notes or keeping a journal, or was this just yeah, off the top I of your head? Up. I kept a little notebook in my uh, pocket, and I took a lot of notes. But, you know, I only did that until about 1980. And uh, after that, what I would do is I would come home from a hunt, regardless of whether it was successful or not, and I would write that, I would write the story of it right away. And, of course, then there wasn't any computers, you know, so you had to do it on the typewriter. And oh. I would uh, I would write it down right away. And of course, boy, once Judy and Chris, our son, helped me run the company. Once they talked me into a computer, I had a hard time with the computers when they come out. And uh, they talked me into getting a computer. Well, man, it was the best thing I ever did because where it'd take me two weeks to do an article with a typewriter, uh, I can I can do one up and out of in, you know, just a few hours on the computer and then read it three or four times and edit it and that over a period of three or four days and you're done, you know. So that really made a lot of difference. 
But the one big thing and uh, that I do want to mention in this is probably, I would have to guess, 80% of those pictures in there are were slides because that's mm. all we'd take, you know, because there wasn't digital. And so right. I had to have those, all of those. I converted about 4,000 slides uh, to uh, uh, digital. And, boy, I'll tell you what, that put a hole in my pocket. I know, I know that for sure. But it's still the best thing that I could do. Yeah, uh, I mean, these, the color pictures really uh, bring this book to life. I mean, it, it really they really do. Well, Lee Klein, uh, of course, I had him do that front uh, one, two, and lay it out. But uh, Lee did a lot of, I, I paid Lee to do a lot of the pictures from digital, or to digital from slide. And that guy, he's, of course, he's a professional photographer, too. And uh, that guy is just so precise with what he does. And he just did a beautiful job with those photos. In fact, a lot of them I talked with him about being afraid they weren't good enough to do, and he said, I'll clean them up. And he was able to do that because, you know, sometimes when you're out in the field, you're not out there under ideal conditions, that's for sure. That is for sure. And, boy, he was he just did a beautiful job on those, so. I was happy about uh, that. I really loved the old, old school Fred Bear camo, the old patterns. Uh, I'd love to see that stuff come back into fashion again. Those are such such a cool old camouflage. The the, the light tan with the big blotches, um, you know, uh, yeah. that you see you guys wearing a lot. I wish that that stuff would come come back around. It's it's a uh, vintage camo. I sure love that. Yeah, and you know, camo. It was funny because I never, I never cared for camo from day day one. But I, you know, I was a firm believe that you had to have it, uh, and now I know that you don't. Sure, but it worked, you know. I think, but I, and one one of the things, and of course, there were tons of stuff I couldn't put in that book. But one of the things that was funny is we were hunting bighorn sheep up close to, uh, uh, on Rocky Mountain National Park, right along the border on the west end. And we had to go into town to get gas, and I had my camouflage on. And I j- we just got gas, Ed and I, and, and was going to go back. And this lady walked up to me, and she said, What are you doing with that camouflage on? And this was before it was a fad. And uh, mm-hmm. I said, Oh, we're hunting. And she says, Well, aren't you afraid somebody's going to shoot you? And I said, No, they can't shoot me if they can't see me. <laughs> that end, end of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, but uh, when, I, I was once uh, I was once at the gas station, Marv, uh, uh, in full camouflage, getting some gas and some snacks. And I walked. In, I was as I was walking into the store, the lady was walking out, and she looked at me and she made a quick little jab. She said, "Animal killer," and I. Uh, I was real quick. I looked at her and smiled, and I said, plant killer. And she laughed, and she said, that was a good one. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one, right, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when when Jason Harrison uh, came out with the Kuyu stuff after he got out of uh, Sitka gear, 
uh, I was visiting with him, and he said, what do you think is going to be the next best pattern for me to make? And I said, Jason, a no pattern. I said, traditionalists are sick and tired of the <laughs> military camo and all this other stuff. And I said, make some, you know, a solid tan and a, uh, a light tan and a solid light gray. And he said, I'll look into that. Well, then he did. Uh, he oh, did yeah, those. And they're the largest. You know, what I wear uh, now is the stuff that he gave me after that. Yeah, he does a. Kui does. They offer all their stuff in solids, like fifty percent with all different earth tones for sure. So that that's cool that you yeah. uh, inspired him on that. Well, you know, always when, and I said that from day one with the camouflage. When you get a person two, three, four, five hundred yards and further away from you. The camouflage don't mean nothing. It's just a blob. Yep. You know, even today, uh, a lot of it is. The lighter stuff like those guys make is really good. But anything of the, the darker military, well, and if you notice, yeah. the militaries even went to lighter camel. Lighter, yeah. And uh, uh, Because, boy, once you got up any distance away, it would, you, the person was just a blob. And I've always said that camouflage was made for people. Mm, yes, absolutely. Well, and that's I got a, why I, got why I like that. I was talking to James yeah, about the other day, and there's so many bow hunters running around now in Kuyu that I think the best thing you could probably do right now, I think they recognize you, is to not have camo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just made the um, the mention of the old camo just as um, – it just has that old school bow hunter feel, you know, it makes me think of the old days. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that it's uh, necessary, but I, I, I love that vintage look, you know, it, it, it does have a, a place. Um, it makes me yeah. think of bow hunting when it was just bow hunting. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. That, uh, I've still got a jacket from the 1960s a Woolrich jacket that was a brown and tan plaid. And uh, it, uh, I've, in fact, I've got my first uh, Pope and Young patches on it yet. But uh, I've retired it just because I don't want to get it all tore up and everything. But that that was like a camel in wool, only it was mm. just a plaid. And I still think that's the best stuff that's ever been made. But you can't, you know, find it anymore. Other than like yeah. bell yeah. wool and stuff like that, I've got a nice Filson wool coat that's like a light tan with uh, with a with a brown and black. Kind of looks like an ASAP pattern almost, uh, but just plaid, not camo. Uh, real nice oh, looking yeah. out in the woods. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff too, boy. That's for sure. And, what uh, what about uh um while we're kind of on gear before we move back into the book, uh, how does, how's the footwear changed? Like what kind of boots are you guys just wearing like a surplus military boot back then? Or were you messing with moccasins back then? Or what, uh, you what know, did that look I like? Of course, right away you had to try the Indian moccasins. Well, that was a good way to kill yourself up in this <laughs> high country. <laughs> Cause you know, you just slip and slide everywhere. And I never did think that that uh, it was as quiet in that high country as it needed to be. And uh, early on, I started wearing, um, oh, 
what was their names? Herman Survivors. And I don't remember, I think I bought a pair in a shop in Boulder. I was in there one day and I saw those Herman Survivors. And uh, I bought that pair of boots. They were like $27 for that pair of boots, and you could buy anything for 15 But that was the best boot that's ever been made. I don't care who it is. Those old Herman Survivors were really something. They were handmade up in Wisconsin or Michigan, and those were really good. But And I then they eventually had to go to China, which was sad. But yeah. then I, when they did that, I started wearing, uh, uh, well, I, I tried a pair of Rockies, and I wore them on, on a sheep hunt. I wore them out on one sheep hunt. And so I, I just got to think there had to be something better than that. And I got a pair of the the Fort Lewis, uh, the Fort Lewis boots from uh, Danner. And those were a military boot, and boy, those, you know, I thought, now I've found it. And I wore those Fort Lewis boots for a long time, and now I've got a pair of the, I think they're the elk hunter or the prong hunter, that, and I've been wearing them for a long time. But, uh, boy, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I dread seeing these people up there with with uh, these cheap boots on, because there's nothing that will kill a hunt worse than your feet. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. On your feet will kill you quicker than anything. That's, and I always wear a pair of uh, silk or poly thin socks against my skin and then a pair of uh, uh, smart wools over that. And I never have blisters because that lets your foot slip in there without uh, oh. rubbing it. And, uh, Is that what they call a sock liner? Pardon? Is that what they call a sock liner? Yeah, yeah. They're real thin. And I started okay. out wearing silk ones, and then they got hard to get, so now I wear poly, polypropylene okay. ones. And, uh, but they, uh, uh, all, the, all the shops have them, especially the, the hiking shops and the climbing shops and that, and Cabela's, there. you can buy them everywhere. And uh, okay. I just put those inside the the wool, and uh, they it keeps you from getting the blisters for sure. But I think the other mistake is, is you know, a lot of especially younger guys are so damn hard headed that when they're on a hunt and they fart to start to feel a, a soft spot, a hot spot on their feet. They're too proud to stop and do something with it, and that's a big mistake. You know, big. if you feel a hot spot, and you you can usually feel a hot spot on your feet mm-hmm. long before it turns to a blister. And if a Absolutely. guy will just stop and put a moleskin over that, I carry moleskin all the time, and just stop yeah, and me put too. moleskin, and I put that on a number of guys' feet. And I always tell them when I'm sheep hunting with somebody, if you feel a hot spot, stop now. And we'll put moleskin on it, and uh, you just put a spot of moleskin over it, and that usually takes care of it. And boy, blisters! Are... And I've seen guys get so bad. I saw I had one guy that I hunted sheep with that after he got a real bad blister, and we moleskinned it and taped it up and everything, and he was limping the whole time. After that hunt was over, he got uh, real bad infection in that. 
So, boy, a guy really has to be careful with those blisters, that's for sure. Uh, I've watched guy. It, I've watched it ruin hunts for sure. It, it, it can uh, it can stop the hunt right then and there. And you're absolutely yeah. right. You yeah. got to pay attention to how your feet feel and stop. And sometimes just airing your feet out, just stopping and taking your boots off and airing them out, and oh make yeah, a big yeah. difference. Yeah. And see the other thing that we uh, Scott uh, Hargrove and I done some seminars together on big buck hunting. We had we had fun doing those. And one of the we we even put together a, uh, a program uh, so that we could show that that program. And one of the first things we did when we got to talking about feet was tell people trim your toenails. That's another thing that can really hammer you if your toenails are too long and they get to rubbing in the boots, boy, they'll really hurt you. You got to keep those toenails trimmed. Yeah, a hundred percent. The the Ford in your book was very nice, and it was written by your friend Marv Cochran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, me and Bob were talking about. Uh, we, we keep hearing that name thrown around, but I can't put my finger on who Mar- Marv Cochran is. Well, he writes for. Uh, he lives over in Harrisonville, Missouri. And he was, he was a past president of uh, Compton Traditional Bow Hunters. And okay. he's the one that came up with the, the paintings, the, the legend paintings, uh, oh. starting out with Fred Bear and then with Glenn St. Charles and that. He's the one that came up with that. And he also writes for Tread Archer's World now. Okay. And, and of course, he was real big in starting the Missouri uh, what is it called? United Bow Hunters of Missouri. He was big in starting that, and Mars really, really a great guy, good hunter, really a good hunter. And uh, he came out here in, uh, in in to Colorado and hunted for 16 days and killed a bighorn sheep. And uh, him and I had quite some quite some fun on that hunt. So, but man, that guy stuck with it. And, I don't know of anybody else that I've hunted with that would have done it for 16 days, you know, a non-resident, wow. but he did, and he got a right. ram. I can't remember the stats in here, but in the book, you have been involved in a lot of uh, big horn hunts and goat hunts, and not as an outfitter, not as a guide, as somebody that is passionate about the high country and passionate about these, these animals, and you really uh, – gone on to help a lot of people fill their tags or or to get up into the high country maybe talk a little bit about that well a lot of that was selfishness on my part it gave me an excuse to get up there <laughs> and and you know i one of the things that i i guess i don't know how you even say it but one of the things that bothered me from the beginning is i've got a lot of friends that are outfitters but i always felt bad because obviously an outfitter's not going to share anything with somebody that doesn't hunt with them and uh, i always felt bad for these guys that were having a hard time finding out about uh, any places to go and everything and i always told them uh, I said, hey, I'll, I'll be more than happy to help you. And if they were friends, I'd go with them. If they'd ask mm-hmm. me to go with them, I'd go with them. And, and those hunts that I mentioned in there, those 65 or whatever, 
those are hunts that I actually went on. And there was hundreds and hundreds more that guys would call, and I'd tell them over the phone, talk with them, and tell them where to look and all of that kind of stuff. In fact, right now, in the last two weeks, I've probably had eight or nine guys call me and say, hey, where do I put in for sheep and that? And I, don't, I, I love helping them. And I think it's important to help people, you know, to to do that. And I'll send them into my favorite hunting spots. I don't care. I, it's just that, one of that, those that's things. Not a, that, that, there's no, nothing selfish about any of that. That's just pure being grateful. Or, or well, being, yeah, but uh, you've got to remember, that, that got me on their hunt. <laughs> <laughs> got you into the country. <laughs> got you on the hunt. Well, in fact, about, uh, oh, God, I don't know, it was 18... It had been 18, 20 years ago. It was in the early 90s. I had two outfitters file a grievance with the Game and Fish Departments against me because I was taking guys hunting without a license. And at that point in time, I was working with the uh, uh, law enforcement in the Game and Fish Department on complaints against bow hunters, you know, and, and uh, uh, bow hunting mishaps of poaching and stuff like that. I investigated that for Pope and Young and for Colorado Bow Hunters for five years. And at the time they turned me in on that, I was working with those guys. And uh, the head of law, or he was second in command of law enforcement, he called me and he said, Mark, we've got a complaint against you. And he says, I know this is a bunch of crap, but he said, i got to ask you a few questions. He said, have you ever taken money for a hunt? And I said, yeah. I said, I took a beer twice and uh, three or four dinners. And I said, that really paid for a lot of gas and everything. And he just laughed. You know, like I said, I, I've helped a number of outfitters find sheep for their people. And uh, and I, I'll still help them if I can. I just feel that, you know, you gotta, if you've got the, the knowledge about a place or know where something's at, you better help them. Yeah, incredible. I think, you know, guys that listened to our podcast before we had you on talked a lot about high country mule deer, which is also one of your huge passions. But after reading this, and it's just incredible how much time you spent sheep hunting. I guess I didn't know you were as much of a sheep nut as you were. And, and uh, I don't want you, I don't want to ruin any of the stories, that's for sure. But I do, the, the stone sheep story is just incredible. And I want to just read, I'm just going to read a, one paragraph at the end of the story here just to get guys hooked in here. And it's, he's talking about his his flight. And uh, on the flight, you know, he's on there with other hunters. And it says, the talk centered around Stone's Ram and the hunts coming up, blah, blah, blah. When asked what rifle I was shooting, I said, none, I'm hunting with a longbow. All looked and turned at me like I was crazy. That was on the way up. And then he said, on the on the plane back, four of these same hunters were on it. They'd hunted for 15 days and hadn't killed any sheep. They asked if I saw any sheep, and I said yes. I'd made many stocks and saw around 18 legal rams. When asked if I got a shot, I said yes, at 20 yards or so. I killed a ram, and you could have heard a fly land. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't just kill a ram. I mean, I'm no stone sheep master, but it looks gigantic. And the story, I mean, they got trapped out. I mean, incredible. You guys, you got to get the book and read it. It is. And the pictures, just unbelievable. Ah. Well, you know that hunt, the, uh, and, and I mentioned that in there. Those Indians, 
they were great guys, both of them were. The young guy was 20 years old. In fact, I think I said in there his birthday was on my birthday. But, you know, those guys are proud, proud hunters. And and every day he would say, Marv, you want to use my rifle? And I'd say, no. And at the end of that 10 days, he finally said, I don't think you're going to shoot one of the rifle, are you? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> said, you're finally realizing that. <laughs> And after the after that was over, uh, they had we always went to the Fanaz get-togethers out in Reno, and they had an award system for you know archery and and for the guides, and uh, he got an award for taking help. He'd get that sheep, and he came down to that. And uh, Dave Suits, who's my buddy here, we, we were all there together, and Fabian said, you know, Marv, he said that's still the best hunt that I've ever been on in my life. And that guy, you know, even 60-some sheep that he'd help kill. Yeah. And I felt so good about that because it took us 15 days, but we got her done. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, I, th- I think still to this point, I mean, who else has killed a stone sheep with a longbow, right? I mean, yeah. you and Nathan Anderson, and I don't know who else, right? That's the only two as far as we can find out. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only two as far as we know right now. So, and well, I, and I imagine there's other guys that have. I would think there were, there are since then. And uh, but well, I think that uh, that it was in. Uh, I I called Pope and Young about the uh, doll sheep, and I think mine was number seven. No, Duke's was number seven, and I think mine was number eight. Uh, that had been the doll sheep that had been killed with the longbow, but uh, the stone sheep, I think just Nathan and I are the only two that have killed them. Yeah, it's incredible. Amazing. Incredible. What a great story. And ah, oh, the pictures. <sighs> I wish well, I was it was an awesome right hunt. <laughs> I was going to say, we still have an ongoing campaign to get Marv a desert sheep tag. Uh, we've talked oh. about it in the last uh, podcast with you, but. Um, yeah, if anyone listen, if we have him any way, we can slide uh, the the odds in his favor. We need to get Marva <laughs> desert sheet tag. Well, this I is think, the I year. think they should I'm... just give you one. I I think they should just give you one, Marva. I mean, I said that before, <laughs> but you look at your accomplishments, and uh, I say we don't even need to charge them interest. Just give them a give Marva tag, and and uh, we'll all be happy. Well, this is the year I'm going to draw it here in Colorado this year. <laughs> yes, you are. I've only been saying that for 25 or 30 years. <laughs> I told the guys at the Game and Fish Department, the sheep guys down there, I said, you know, if you guys had a hair, you would give everybody over 75 a desert sheep permit. And he said, God, do you realize what had happened? He said, we wouldn't have any sheep left. I said, count them for me. The guys over seventy five that'll hunt them. <laughs> I only know of two. <laughs> uh, uh, is Colorado? Uh, we'll do they we'll have a? Is it just a any weapon desert sheep tag? Or is yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. any weapon, but there's so few permits it doesn't make any difference, you know. Yeah, yeah. And where I'm putting in uh, three of my buddies. And they keep track of those desert sheep all the time. I would say that in those two areas that are down there, they have probably helped 
probably 80 to 90% of the guys that have killed sheep in there. They've probably guided them in the right direction, and they're the same way. They're not guides at all or charge anything. They just help guys. And uh, I think they've helped almost all of the guys down there that, that have killed sheep, desert sheep. And So I keep telling George, he's my old buddy George Vandenberg's 84 years old, going on 85, and I keep telling him the ideal situation is if him and I would draw the permits. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Because uh, he's been putting in for the same amount of time I have, so... Great you guys. guys are getting pretty into that Shiris moose hunting here as of late, right? The why? You guys have been getting pretty into that Shiris moose hunting here as of late. Oh, my man. We have had so much fun with that. I think the four that I was involved, and I was actually on all four hunts, uh, the, the four that we got this year uh, I think made uh, 10 or 11 that, I've been involved with, and oh man, they're fun. We just have a ball hunting those moose. <laughs> and one of the guys, that, uh, oh Alan from uh, Indiana, he drew uh, Alan Clark. He drew that, and he had the the article was in uh, what was that again? I think Treader was it in Treader's or one of those. But anyway. Uh, Alan drew the non-resident cow permit because I've been having him put in for that for a few years, and he drew that up there, and I think uh, he ended up getting it the second day. So, and that was with a longbow, so that was fun. That was that was uh, neat. Super so, awesome. And I don't know if, what I, is, if, uh, you, if, ahead, if you knew about that doctor friend of mine. But uh, he's the one that's, and I talked about him before, he's the one that saved my life from the cancer. And we've got to be really, really good friends. But anyway, <laughs> just uh, just about the time the brochures come out, he said, you know, I'm sick and tired of you guys drawing these moose permits and me not. So he bought the governor's permit. And, <laughs> uh, and he bought that governor's permit, and two weeks later he draws a permit. <laughs> 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 I called oh, him and I wow. said, Chip, I think you better buy a couple more freezers. <laughs> yeah. And he ended up killing two bulls. We we got one. The first one, he just wanted to shoot one for meat, and he shot a, a, a young bull, a small bull. And the second one, he, we got him a Boone and Crockett bull. So. Wow. And he's rifle hunting, though. So. Okay. That was a fun hunt. That sure sounds like well, it. You've, you've uh, been on lots of those. <laughs> yeah, and of course we're close. See, I'm I'm an hour away from the best moose hunting in Colorado, without a doubt. Yeah. Just an hour away from it. But you it's got, the same old uh, thing. Those permits are hard to come by. I know your um, uh, one of your sons uh, is a hardcore bow hunter, and I know you have grandkids and great grandkids how many of and i know they're all outdoors men and outdoors women and fish and hunt but how many of them are uh uh following in your footsteps with uh, you know putting in for tags and hunt with a longbow well they uh, almost all of them are hunting with a longbow i think uh chris and debbie still shoot uh recurves but the rest of them all shoot longbows and of course i've given them longbows to 
for him to shoot. But uh, Todd, Todd is the main one, uh, the oldest boy. Uh, he's killed, uh, I think, he only needs a mountain lion and a desert sheep to kill all ten animals in Colorado. Wow. And, and, of course, he's killed quite a few deer and, and that and stuff like that. And he's the one that killed that big moose. But, uh, you know, the rest of them still hunt a lot. And the grandkids, they all are are hunting quite a bit. But, you know, they're working, trying to make a living and raising families. And that cuts into it these days a lot. Yeah, That's for sure. And, of course, the little, the great-grandkids, none of them are old enough yet. Sure. Uh, we'll get them started when they're three years old. We got one that's going to be three in July, and I'll get her started. I've got a bow for her. We'll get her started then. Yeah, I, I liked where you talked about when you're before your first son was born, you went and got him a, a, a twenty-two rifle, a pair of cowboy boots, and a longbow. Yeah, <laughs> you got to do that. I'm you still doing do that. that. I, I'm not. I've got little rifles for him but i'm not giving them to him i'm getting them cowboy boots and the bows but uh when <laughs> when they're born but uh you got to be a little careful these days you know i'll wait till they get a little older for the the 22 sure. we've got those for him so uh that is you got that is so awesome Mark. that is so awesome well and i yeah I love, um in the book i love the uh you know just the way you you laid out the chapters too just tells a lot about the kind of guy you are, Marvin. Obviously, we've never got to meet you in person, but I can't wait till the day we do because, you know, the chapter one is, you know, those, that great story and basically how you kind of, you know, just drawn to the bow. And then and then chapter two is Jude, about, you know, the wife and how blessed you are, the wife. And then chapter three is the kids. And, I mean, it's just it's just oh. incredible, man. I mean, family is obviously number yeah. one for you. and. Because you've Boy, uh, sure. kind of gone that yeah. direction, you've got to do a lot, you know. Yeah, they're a lot of fun, that's for sure. So, well, um, now I mean, really, you come out, you guys get out here. I'll take you on a on, on a sheep and a moose photo expedition. Perfect. Jeez, that I, awesome. I can't get enough of that in. <laughs> I mean, oh, really? I, you could go out and say that this could be a blueprint of how you should live your life as a, uh, if, if traditional bow hunting is your lifestyle, man, you, you leave a lot of gold nuggets in this book on, uh, how to, uh, live that lifestyle. Um, one of the words I'm looking for, but, uh, you, you, it's a good blueprint here, you know, to put your family first and involve all of them in the outdoors. And, um, and it just keeps, uh, keeps you in the game all the time. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, uh, like uh, Friday we went up to see our son and his family up at Edwards, which is over by Vale, over the top. And on the way up we've seen a great ram just above Georgetown. Boy, he was a nice one. And I didn't stop and take any pictures of him because the uh, traffic was so bad and we were kind of late getting over there to meet. uh, We were to meet our grandson in uh uh, Dylan and uh, Chad Slagle. You know who Chad is? Oh, yeah. We, yeah, mm-hmm. and we met him there because he bought a book and then I just delivered it to him. What a great guy. Oh, He's really a nice guy. Yeah. But anyway, we were late, so uh, I'm going to run up here in the next couple of days and get some pictures of that ram. Boy, he was a dandy. Oh, that sounds awesome. So, 
you know, can't leave him go without a picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm inspired now. Me and Bob bought uh, some nice little cameras uh, that are they're little Sony's. They're pretty pretty high tech little things, and but they're small and they fit in your pocket. And you bet. That's we what both, you want to take. Yeah, we yeah. both have not been. I'll speak for myself. I have not uh, been putting in the time I should. I should be having that thing in my pocket. And, and you know, I, I take pictures with the cell phone more. And those are okay pictures. And they take pretty good pictures. But I know that I should be packing the camera. And I, I've got to, I've got to start doing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, those little ones work good. I've got one, and I never use it because I always carry my I, – I use a Canon uh, uh, 5D uh, Mark II. And somehow I end up always taking that heavy dang thing with me. But one of the things that you want to look at getting you guys is those uh, little gorilla pod. Have you seen those? Yep, I have. Boy, I have those. One. I, I carry one of them all the time for uh, when I'm by myself for hero mm-hmm. pictures because you can hook that thing up to a limb or a fence post yeah. or yep. on the ground on top of a rock, and they don't weigh anything. They yep. are such good little things that they really work good. Yeah, that's, that's good all those for sure. pictures when I'm by myself, I use that. <laughs> I like how you call them hero pics. Uh, <laughs> you still shooting? Are you still shooting wood shafts, Mark? Oh yeah, yeah. Is there anything else? <laughs> I don't think so. Not that I know of. <laughs> I love the footed ones. I get my footed shafts. Uh, from up in Canada, from David Cartwright, and uh, I love the footage shafts and that. And uh, um, I also just are uh, they more durable uh, for you? Oh yeah, definitely. You don't ever break them off behind the head. But uh, the other thing that I I just got and I'm starting to shoot them is uh, I got some of those old Sweetlands from uh, that Eha guy up in Canada. The old compressed cedars, still the best yeah. shafts ever been made. Best shafts Absolutely. ever been made. And uh, I love them. I, in fact, I just got some arrows made up, and I'm shooting them, too. But I love footed shafts. They're so pretty and nice, and they do shoot good. Those, uh, those bills. Wait forward. you got it there. <laughs> um, and yep. So not to get too far down the rabbit hole in the wood shafts, but with that more weight forward, does it change your spine any from, you know, like your regular non-footed shafts if you shoot a you know 60 65 is your spine going to be the same with your footed arrows same length oh no no you have to have the you have to get the right spine with the footed arrow you know you have to ask those guys make them up and they spine them and you have to get the spine right and and, because it's going to change that because usually those footed arrows are seven the foot is usually seven to eight inches which is going to yeah you know weak in the uh, dynamic spine Differ, but boy, I'm telling you, those things shoot like, and the penetration is unreal when you've got that much weight forward. And I always laughed, and I've told told a lot of the guys who heard a weight forward until about what ten years ago, at the most. And uh, and here we've been shooting weight forward all our lives. (laughs) (laughs) I I know you probably mentioned it in the uh, previous podcast, but what what are your favorite broadheads? Uh, the, the, I, I only shoot those switch blades, those old switch blades, oh, the Ben Pearson right. switch right. blades. Pearson, yeah, when, when, when Jim right. Doherty and those guys come up with them, he sent me that big box, and I'm still using them. And uh, they seem to seem to work pretty well. So why change? You know, 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I I do have to say something, and it's probably going to make some guys mad. But uh, two days ago, I was watching a uh, program. I just happened to watch it on that Bucks and Bulls. Somebody uh, sent it to me email, and I watched these guys hunting uh, a big whitetail buck. And he hit that whitetail buck with a, a uh, uh, what do you call those, open-on impact heads. Yeah, and, mechanical. Uh, he, yeah, he he showed the arrow. At, when he picked it up, he showed that arrow. There was no blades left on it, and he they didn't mention it. They took the camera off it right away. He had to shoot that buck two more times with those. And why would you show that to the world, yeah. you know, that you had to do that with those things? And I just don't understand it. I, I mean, I've had two times now since, well, once since I talked to you guys just this last fall, uh, I had a guy shoot a bull elk that came by me, and all three of the blades were broke off it. The arrow was hanging out of the bull, and they never found it. I helped him track it for probably a quarter of a mile, and then we lost it, and uh, the, he lost the bull. But it, when I looked at it with my binoculars at 60 yards when it came by me, it came walking by me. Uh, there, it, I thought he shot it with a field point. Yeah. And I, and then there was another guy that lost a six by six bull up there, and they found it. I don't know four or five days later. But uh, boy, I don't, I don't understand that. I just don't yeah. understand it. But anyway, I'll get like, off that. Yeah, just <laughs> no moving, moving parts, and not having the availability to be able to sharpen your head. It seems uh, blasphemy. Yeah. Blasphemy. <laughs> Like you, like you were saying, it, don't fix it if it ain't broken. But everybody's trying to. The thing is, those mechanical heads—they can shoot them a lot further. Easier oh, to yeah. tune. And, yeah, and you know, I've had guys jump on me about those switchblades that uh, you know you hit a rock with them or you shoot them into a try them out on a cinder block and they they fold up. And I said, well, I don't hunt rocks and I don't hunt cinder blocks. <laughs> there was a. Marv, there was a guy yesterday on Instagram posting videos, and he was shooting his carbons into rocks, and then and then he shoots a wood arrow into it, and it breaks. And he goes, "See, these these wood arrows are no good. They break when you hit rocks." And I was like, "Well, I'm not into shooting rocks myself." <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Oh, me and neither. The, you know, one of the the benefits I see to you know what we're all using is. I, you know, I hunted with a compound for a long time and, and, you know, with the stick bow, you gotta wait till you got a good broadside shot and you're, you're aiming for that soft stuff, you know what I mean? And if, if, obviously if we hit a rib, we'll bust through that, but, but, uh, you know, it, you know, you're shooting one of those switch blades or something and you do shank it or something bad happens, you hit it in the shoulder, well, yeah, it's just gonna, curl the tip and fall out and the buck's going to be fine you know nowadays with these compounds and guys are you can watch those youtube videos all day long they shoot at any angle front to back to wherever and yeah and, but he, uh, and you hit that same bone in those ribs and it's going to peel those blades right off it yeah yeah, yeah. so anyway, I, i've got uh, you know uh, i'm one of the few guys left that, of all my hunting buddies that are shooting woods and one of the things that I keep getting on them about is they spend hours tuning those uh, arrows to their bows, you know. 
Uh, it don't take me any time at all to tune my wood arrows to the bow. I just get the <laughs> spine that I've been shooting, and I'm ready to go. Yeah. And I don't, I don't well, do all that. A lot of that's the benefit. That's the benefit of wood, you know, and for wood. guys that don't understand what he's talking about. Because, yeah, there's a lot of guys that wood arrows are <laughs> foreign, but... You know, you can get an arrow 50 to 55 spine or 70, 75. They go in five pound spine increments, whereas carbons, you get a, uh, you know, 300 to 340 or, a, you know, 400 and a 500. They're, you know, they're a lot bigger gaps. So you have to cut down the arrow and add weight and do a lot of tinkering to get them going. Whereas yeah. once you find your right woodies, you're, you're 50, 55 forever or whatever, you know, and pretty simple. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you have there's like no question 30. that those carbon arrows, once they get them to shoot, they shoot really good. Oh yeah, you sure. know they sure. they shoot good for the guys and they do good with them. But I'm just not a high tech person. Uh, so if I I'm got gonna, one I, more question for you on arrows. Um, so I've been my biggest problem. Like I said, I've been hunting with the trad bow off and on for twenty. 20 plus years now with 15 pretty much solid and my biggest problem whenever i you know whenever i do have a shot go wrong it's always the animal moves takes a step or you know and, and i do a lot of elk calling and so i get it there they know i'm there you know whatever but uh and so i've tinkered a little bit i still shoot those five inch shields and i was trying to even try some of those plastic trad veins this year but i ah, got rid of those they weren't flying, you know, I'm not a tuning master, no no uh, fault of the f- Fletches probably. but So that's why I'm switching to an old D-shaped string follow longbow this year. And uh, and I need one of those side quivers because I'm going as quiet as possible. Have you had, you know, issues with them hearing the feather coming or dodging out of the way or anything? All the no. years of your experience? I, I'll tell you, I have, I talked about that. Uh, antelope hunt with Steve Gore in there, you know, about that buck antelope doing it. That's the only animal that I've ever seen that jumped from a problem. And, and usually, uh, I had it twice from my bow tip hitting the blind. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I can't ever recall an animal jump, what I call jumping the string or jumping the arrow. Huh. I, I don't ever recall that. You know, I take uh, a little, uh, oh, about three-inch-long pieces of, of uh, tanned deer hide, and I cut three cuts in each side and put that into my string, even on the longbow. And because, you know, the longbow make kind of a little thump sometimes, and I just like seeing them in there anyway. And I put those little bitty, you'll see them in those pictures. Okay. I put yep. those little bitty pieces of, of deer hide, tanned deer hide, in those uh, in the string, and uh, I've never had any problem with that at all. Yeah, you know. So shot. do you do you guys think that they're that when they do jump the string, it's because of the arrow noise or the bow noise? Oh, I don't think there's any question. It's the bow noise. Okay. Yeah, it's it's the bow noise, and I think one of the things that happens is uh, a lot of times the uh, I use a, a sheepskin rest on most of my uh, stuff or a uh, felt pad, one of the two. And I've always had real, real slick slick work with that. I, I really like the sheepskin just because the wet don't bother it. 
But either way, you know, it's they're quiet. But I think that I I do think that uh, that they're jumping more from the the sound of the bow, and it's not necessarily the bow as much as it is the release your fingers and your arm guard and hitting clothes and stuff like that. Because I've been with guys that I've heard it hit their clothes on them, and they didn't realize that it did, you know, like a jacket or against the arm or that, and they don't realize that that happened with it. And it's mostly the clothes, you know. But the other thing is 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 the guy's got to be real careful about what you're shooting with with tabs or or gloves or whatever, that they're not making a little bit of noise. And I've always used, uh, since the day they came out, I've used those uh, work gloves. I think I told you that before. The original work glove, and it doesn't take any amount of time, and those things get just slick and smooth, and you feel it with your fingers. You know what's going to happen. I've always thought with a thick shooting glove, a leather shooting glove, you don't know what's going to happen until it's too late. Yet yeah. uh, they're hard to feel that string. So it, it is interesting. The original work glove. Yeah, I always yeah, get it a, is interesting. I get those double layered, you know, finger gloves, and then I'll because of that I'll rip off those extra layers because I don't. It never made any sense to me. I'm like, well, I can't feel the string, so I. T- tear those yeah. off so it was just a single layer kind of Howard Hill style uh, but I'll have to look into that original work club. Yeah, so, you you got to get the original one okay. because you know most of them have uh, those uh, dot or plastic overlays on them mm-hmm. but the, and you can still buy the original one and it doesn't have anything on the, on the fingers and boy after you use them for a while and uh, wetness doesn't bother them either Nice. They don't turn to mush like a, a leather tab or a leather string wheel, or a leather glove, I mean. But uh, that's all I use. The only problem that I've seen with them is that guys that don't work with their hands a lot, their fingers get sore from them if they shoot a lot. Yeah. And uh, my hunting buddy, uh, Duke, does that. You know, sometimes he doesn't use them. He uses a regular leather glove because his fingers will get sore because we shoot so much. Can't, you and can't that, have soft, uh, wimpy hands. Yeah, yeah. That, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So I feel better, Marv. I feel like my switching to the longbow then is going to solve my string jumping problem because I've always shot recurves. I'm shooting the quietest longbow. I got some little fur silencers on there, but I'm going to put some chunks of leather in there. I'm going to try that glove. I'm gonna, I, I'm feeling good. Do the side quiver. I think a lot of times, too, I've noticed with with those bow quivers, especially when you have feathers in there and you got five or six arrows, when you shoot, it makes, you know, whether the quiver's super quiet or not, those arrows are going to yeah. rattle and, and those feathers rattle and make more noise than those longbows going off, you know? Yeah, boy, these won't yeah. at all, you know. Uh, the, the one other thing that you've got to watch when with your uh, shooting like that with fingers is that you you come straight back away from your face when you let the string go. And Tom yep. Clum, you know, is one of the best teachers in the world of, of teaching traditional shooting, and he stresses that a lot. And I have too. That you want, you got to make sure you come back because if you pluck it an inch out to the side, it's going to make a little noise when you pluck mm-hmm. that string because it's going to make it go crooked. And if you come straight back 
when you release, comes straight back to the back of your neck with it, you aren't going to have any noise whatsoever. Now, no with noise. Your, but, with your arm guard, because I never even wore an arm guard with my recurve. No, no, no. Was, I'm talking about your shooting fingers. Yeah, yeah. When you yeah. let go of that thing, when you let go of that thing, if you've ever seen those pictures of what you call plucking, you know, you go, when you let go of the string, your hand goes away from your face to the right yep. side if you're. Yeah. Uh, that makes that string in a uh, S shape, and it has to come back to straight, which makes noise. Okay, I got. But you. if you come straight back, let it go, and actually run your fingers right along the side of your face, uh, you won't ever have that problem. You never have I, that problem. I got. I get to pluck in if I try to do that real pretty dynamic. Um, like the, a lot of those guys do, because I just haven't you know mastered it or whatever. So what I what I've done for my own self is I try to do a static release where I keep my hands on my face and I pull through on my face and not have very much movement. And if I can do that right, uh, it, it sure does make the boat quieter and there's less movement on my part. And you're doing it right there. You're doing it right there. Yeah. Okay, Sometimes one, Every one more in a while. quiet question <laughs> on the arm guard. Um, you know, I never wore one with a recurve because I didn't seem to hit my arm, but with the longbow, I, I got it now where I'm not hitting my arm, but, uh, but when it does, like you said, you hear that, and I got a leather arm guard. Is there any, like, do you got any tricks? Have you used anything other than the leather or to make it quieter if by chance you do hit your arm guard a little bit? No, I've always made my own arm guards out of leather. Okay. The, the problem that you have without an arm guard is if your clothes, your arm, sleeve sticks out at all uh your string's going to tap that and make a noise yeah you know and regardless of whether you hit the arm guard or not it keeps your your uh sleeve back away from the string yeah. and it's especially important if you're in cold weather where you've got a heavy jacket on it, it, uh, it in it, fact in in real cold weather i've got a arm guard that goes not only up there but it goes through this the crook in my elbow went about four or five inches up my arm to keep that darn coat mm. out of the way. Yeah. And I, it's just a long arm guard is what it is. And, it, but, it's, uh, uh, it's interesting to see how, how our, uh, how the equipment has evolved and the clothing's evolved and all this stuff's evolved. And because of the, the, these guys are able to take these longer shots, quiet is not, valued anymore it's hard oh, to find no, a quiet no. backpack it's hard to find quiet clothing it's hard like uh guys are shooting trad bows that are not even very quiet i'm like whatever happened to uh, um bow hunting being uh, as quiet as possible and having the quiet that's what i've been running into is is uh you look at all the old stuff everything was wool and and uh fleece and everybody was into keeping everything nice and quiet that kind of has gone away and the new guys don't even realize um how loud we are out there yeah boy you have to and i don't know if i mentioned before when we were talking about mulder hunting but uh at the one of the pope and young conventions uh richard dewey who is a big traditional uh friend that's a bow hunter him and i went to a seminar that a guy put on about hunting mule deer and of course he was a compound shooter and most of the people in there were and he made the comment, 
that you should get closer than 30 to 35 yards from a mule deer because you'll never kill him. You're getting too close to him. <laughs> Rich and I looked at each other. We're just starting to hunt there. <laughs> there there's a lot you know, of and information. I, and it goes back to that. It goes yeah. back to that, that yeah. he's not realizing that it's the noise and the, from the compound and the arrow and everything that's uh, causing that problem, you know, that you can't get any closer than that. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I think guys also get caught up in, in stretching out their shooting in their yard and, and not really thinking about bettering their stocking skills because it seems like a lot of guys are like, oh, if you're going out west, you're going to have to be prepared for a 40-yard shot on a mule deer. And then yeah, you see yeah. we bring we bring guys on like Brian Colzer, and he's shooting them from eight feet. Yeah, in their beds. <laughs> yeah, I've always told guys I said that speed is nothing that I've ever looked at in a bow. I don't care if it's slower in molasses, if it's accurate. And I've always said at eight to ten yards, speed don't make any difference. Yeah. Nope. Uh, well, I think we. Uh, Definitely covered all the equipment stuff pretty well. Um, is there is there uh, some more stuff? I'd like to talk about the book a little more. Yeah, uh, I, lost I don't know. The, is there anything I, else I that we didn't thought. cover that, uh, like I said, we could talk to you forever, Mar, for days, but we don't want to give up all your spoiled stories in this awesome book. So um, maybe, you know, we'll just go over, I guess, Son of the longbow.com is the website. That's all up and running right now. You can get on there and order it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And they can, you know, they can do either PayPal or, or send me a check or whatever. I've been getting quite a few checks and, but, uh, at any rate, why the son of the longbow.com, the credit card thing works the fastest, you know. It yeah. works good. It costs me more, but it, it's still, it's a facet to get a book, that's for sure. So. Well, I think every, I want everybody to get out and get this book. It is awesome. That's all I can say. Uh, I, I called Marv yesterday, and I said, man, you, you, you knocked it out of the park with this one. It, it is really good. Well, I appreciate that, by golly. And, uh, you, you think we, uh, uh, since we are a... Uh, bow hunting podcast um and i don't want to give up uh, in your stories but do you think we could uh in this uh interview with uh, a bow hunting story of your choice well <laughs> of course uh, you know most of the, most of the fun ones are the the bow hunting stories of your choice but uh we've we've had so much fun bow hunting you know that and and i i still think that that's a big part of it is you have to really really enjoy you know that uh, the hunting. If uh, if you don't, you're missing a lot of it, and that's one of the problems that I think you see nowadays. That uh, guys like uh, killing, but they don't like to shoot their bows. We shoot all the time. You know, when we go out hunting, we carry a judo with us, and and we're constantly shooting, having a little contest to see who can hit what and everything. But. Uh, it's just fun, and I'm ready for turkey season to open. That's for sure. And I love hunting those turkeys. I just, I think they're one of the most fun. Anything that I can call, I love to hunt. And those darn turkeys can be a lot of fun. They can be frustrating as heck, <laughs> but they can sure be a lot of fun. And 
And I think one of the best ones was with Sean, and I, I wrote an article about that a few years back, our grandson. I think he was 15 or 16, and I took him turkey hunting up here and, and called in these turkeys. And I told him, now, uh, we were right on the edge of a bluff, and those darn turkeys had come up over that bluff, and they would be in shooting range at about 10 yards when they come up over that bluff. So it was one of those things where, surprise, there's a red head. <laughs> and I kept telling him, I said, now watch right there. They're going to come up, and this big old gobbler walked up over that, and he went crazy. And I said, calm down, calm down, and stick him. And he missed that turkey and hit a tree. So when he was over there getting his arrows out, I said, Sean, turn around and look at me. And when he looked at me, I took a picture of him with that arrow sticking out of the tree. And I told him, I said, hey, that's not very good eating, that's for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's been he's been hunting with you. He hasn't got one yet, but his dad got his first one last year. So I'm going to take him up here in the next few weeks if I can get him. Well, not in the next few weeks, but it opens, I think, um, um, April the 10th. And uh, I'll get him up there, and we'll try to get him a turkey in. A lot of fun with them, well, that's, that's for sure. Do you guys have quite a few turkeys out there? Uh, we got we got a few. Um, yeah, and, and they're getting to be more and more. You know, the areas I grew up hunting in eastern Oregon, they, they, uh, they've done a good job, you know, bringing back the populations out there. They've transplanted a bunch of them. And, you know, places I grew up as a kid, elk hunting, there are no turkeys. I actually spent a lot of time this year with my daughter. She was five last year, and... With the COVID and everything, we we actually spent weeks over there turkey hunting. We only we only called you know one group in, but man, we had a blast. And I hadn't turkey hunted since I was probably in you know twenty years old. So uh, yeah, it was oh, a good I'll time. We have some we, Southern Oregon has a bunch of them, and and they kind of spread around. Yeah, so well, yeah, my it. my my daughter didn't get her spring bear tag this year, and. She'd, she'd uh, killed her first animal last year, which was a spring bear. So she's kind of a, she thinks she's a bear hunter now. And she didn't get her tags. Yeah, she didn't get her tags. So now uh, uh, I've never hunted turkey, but that's the other option. So we're going to figure out spring turkey together. Uh, yeah. Get out in the field and get that figured out. Um, I can tell you. Uh, my cousin that owns the, the ranch where I do quite a bit of my hunting, uh, right up from us here. Uh, I was talking to him the day before yesterday, and he said he had eight big gobblers that he saw up there in the pasture just uh, a couple days ago. So I'm hoping they stick around. That's for sure. Oh, what kind of turkeys do you guys have in Colorado? Uh, Reels and Miriams. And see, in the mountains, okay. we're supposed to have all Miriams, but the darn game and fish department, when they transplanted them, and I was I always tell people that when they ordered turkeys from the breeders and that, and that they asked them what kind they wanted, they said wild. <laughs> and and they, we ended up with Rios and Miriams up here, and the problem is the darn Rios seem to be breeding out the Miriams. And uh, yeah. I love isn't, the Miriams. Isn't that, you know, they, the isn't that the tail. same in Oregon? Yeah. Yep. Um, Yep. Yeah, we have very few Merriams left because the Rios kind of took took over. Oh yeah, yeah, they'll breed them out. There's no question about that. Now I killed a big Merriams last this last fall, and uh, I think three days later Todd killed a big Rio right in the same spot. 
and I called uh, called both of them in. But uh, we're seeing more, many more reels than we are the Merriams, that's for sure. So I hate to see that. Well, I uh, I uh, I read the first five chapters of this book yesterday, and I am itching to get back into it. So uh, I, I will definitely be getting this book read this week. And you guys have got. I just switched over to a fifty style static recurve this year, um, but you guys have got me uh, wanting to go right back to the longbow. And the biggest <laughs> hangup I have is the quiver. So it looks like me and Bob are going to have to figure out how to make these eight-hour, eight-arrow Marv Clink quivers yeah. because I think that's the ticket. Yeah. Well, uh, send me an email, and I'll send you a drawing of how to make them. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. And okay. the only thing that's tough is it's getting tougher and tougher to find those uh, uh, those old ace and the whole quivers because they make the best one. Okay. Uh, some of the other ones that hold six or seven arrows, work good too but the that old ace in the hole really makes good ones and they're getting harder and harder to come by and i've been buying buying them off of ebay and then a lot of people know it and they'll send me some but i think i've only got one left and i'm getting low on them too but and the other thing that you need is the uh, aluminum uh what i use is uh uh signs from off the highway uh, when they get knocked down, these guys that salvage them, I've been able to get them from them. And uh, you can't go out and knock a sign down just so you get. <laughs> but, uh, I've always wanted one of those elk crossing signs, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, those the elk or those uh, road signs are the perfect aluminum. Uh, so much of that aluminum, when you go to bend it for the uh, the part that fits in your pocket and that, it, it cracks it. Where those well, I got us, got the I, right aluminum. I got us, I got us covered there, uh, Bob. Uh, my daughter's been collecting those. She's got her bedroom full of old signs. <laughs> and, you have to um, go ahead and steal one, huh? <laughs> well, no, she 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 gets she's got these thrift stores around here. I they they've got them tons of them for cheap. We can just go buy one from one of the thrift from one of these antique stores here in town because I was in one with her the other day when she picked up one and they had all kinds of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I just, I just take an angle grinder and grind off the the sign part and it leaves it leaves a sticky substance on them that that uh, sign part is put on with. And that's really good. You don't want to take that all the way off. Just take the sign part okay. off. Leave that sticky stuff because that helps stick the leather to it. But, uh, yeah, okay. I'll be glad to show you guys how to make it. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll have to, Very cool. before we release this podcast, we'll have to line us up a couple of those quivers. Otherwise, everybody will be on eBay buying them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, there'll be a beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, what, uh, what, what, uh, besides hunting turkeys with the family and you're going to be real busy with that desert sheep tag this year, what else, what else do you got planned, uh, for 2021, Marv? Well, definitely, definitely the high country deer. And, uh, you know, if I can draw another, uh, elk permit, uh, I'll, I'll hunt elk. Uh, last year I didn't. 
but I had a, I, I got to have a deer permit, so I always make sure that in second and third choice, I put in for areas that are guaranteed a leftover permit, you know, and uh, so that way I can draw them. I, I, I wouldn't survive without being able to hunt the high country. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Marv. Once again, uh, well, we really appreciate. Well, thank you, guys. It. I appreciate it. And yeah, we just appreciate everything you've done for all of us. So, uh, thank you, uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, guys, and you guys take care. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Check us out on Instagram. Leave us a email at tradquestpodcast at gmail dot com. If you guys enjoyed this interview, which I know I did, you're going to get a lot more out of the book. Buy the book, Son of the Longbow by Marv Klinky. You can find this book at sonofthelongbow.com. Please buy as many issues as you can and spread these books around to all your hunting partners and anyone that's getting into bow hunting. Support uh, Marv Klinky because he has done, spent his whole life supporting bow hunting. Thank you so much. Keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Frosty before the sun comes up, the geese are on the wing. The deer are fat and happy, no, they don't suspect a thing. I can't take it any longer, I've got to breathe some air. The only cure for what I've got is or so out there. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all by true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. Let's go outside and shoot you.